you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. We just started discipleship intensive again, again this semester. It's uh, this eight-hour-a-week eight commitment for two years. It's uh, lay seminary. It's, it's intense. We, we left that in the name for a reason. And it's one of my favorite things I do. It lets me fulfill my nerdy side, the side that wanted to be a professor and to, to do research and to teach Every semester, somehow, people sign up for this thing, even though we, we tell them, we're going to spend all this time. I, I get to teach the second semester, where we talk about biblical narrative. We come in each week and look at the grand story of Scripture. We start this week talking about uh, that we're a storied people. We look at Psalm 105 and how uh, in this psalm, uh, Israel's history is recounted, and Israel draws upon this as the source of their hope. That if God was faithful to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, if God worked in and through Joseph's story, he would, he'd be faithful to them. We talk about how uh, God regularly refers to past events in order to, to convince people to, to trust him now. Uh, it, it, when you turn to the Ten Commandments, you hear uh, before, do, don't do this and don't do that. You hear, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of the land of slavery. Therefore, have no other gods before me. This, this same God who brought us out of Egypt is the God who we should be faithful to in our worship. We go on to talk about how Jesus is more than just this God-man who died for us, right? If that's all we needed, he could have just died as a baby and had been done. Instead, Jesus is this full picture of, of humanity and divinity together who lives this full life. But not just that, he, he's Israel's story finished. That for for Israel, he is the Messiah of their hope. He's the son of man. He's the son of David. He is the fullness of their story. He is the law fulfilled. He is the, the greatest example of how God has pursued us from the very beginning. See, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. He formed uh, night and day. He created the animals of our earth and then created humanity in his image. And saw they were very good. He saw that it wasn't good for humanity to be alone. So he made us in community for one another. Male and female in this perfect helper relationship that mirrors the relationship of God and humanity. And yet, on the next page, we see that humanity rebelled against the same God who pursued them in the garden. Who lived with them and dwelled with them. He, he loved them and they rejected him. They sinned against him, and from that point on, God continually pursued humanity through the flood, through the tower, and to the point of making covenant with one man and one family. Through Abraham, he was going to redeem the world. He was going to bring about those same promises from the garden for the whole of humanity. Through Abraham's lineage, we're going to make you a nation and a people. We're going to bless you with offspring who will fill the earth, who will then bless the whole world. We see time after time after time how Abraham's family messes up. Ultimately, 
uh, it does come to the story of Joseph and how they end up in Egypt where his family meant harm for him, but God brought good from it. They rise to power and they're able to survive famine. Things look good for Israel. We turn the page though and we find risen in prominence enough that the Pharaoh has grown fearful of them. He has enslaved them and made them captive. They cry out to God and God hears their cries and delivers them out of Egypt, brings them into the wilderness where he shows his love for them. But even in the wilderness, humanity can't remain faithful. They don't believe that God can do what God says he can do. He, surely he can't deliver us into this land. These people are too big and too strong. Surely it would have been better for us to stay in Egypt than to die in the wilderness. And yet God continually delivers. He gives them the bread and gives them the quail and then eventually brings them into the land where as soon as, they have, as soon as they've received these things that God promised, they rebel again. They turn their hearts away from him and they continually do what is right in the sight of their own eyes. They have these judges who rule them who are no better than they are and time after time after time, God pursues them. They demand a king, rejecting God himself as their leader. They want Saul, and eventually they get David, this flawed human, this king who's after God's own heart, and yet who is so devastatingly flawed. For a brief moment, it seems like maybe they have their promises, and maybe they're going to be faithful to God, and yet they turn away. The nation divides into two. The northern kingdom is taken into captivity in Assyria and is ultimately wiped off the face of the earth. The southern kingdom remains a little bit faithful and a little bit wicked. They reject God and ultimately they are driven into exile in Babylon. The prophets call them back to Yahweh. Listen, be faithful, turn your hearts and God will deliver us. And even in exile, most of them reject God. God is faithful to his promises even when they are not and allows a remnant to come back. But yet, before they've even set the mortar on the temple walls, they're disobeying God's rules. They're being unfaithful and already scheming for their own good. When you flip from the Old Testament and New Testament, we skip 400 years of Israel's story. 400 years of oppression. 400 years of legalism. 400 years of rebelling against the God who created humanity in their image. 400 years of hoping and waiting. And 400 years of trampling on the name of God. John the Baptist comes on the scene and declares that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that the one they had hoped for is coming, the one whose sandals he's not worthy of tying, the one who will baptize with fire and with the Spirit. His cousin Jesus comes on the scene. We hear through the, the pronouncement of the angels that he is God with us, that he is Jesus who will save. He is the hope of the world. Jesus comes on the scene looking nothing like what Israel had expected. Instead of a king after David's own heart or after David's own model, 
He continually gets trampled upon. He continually flees from conflict. He continually goes to the people who are other. Instead of going to the power bases, he goes to the dining table over on that sketchy alley where a good Jew wouldn't go. Instead of assembling his mighty men, he takes his friends up to an upper room and lets them know that he's going to go to death, even death on a cross, and that some of them are going to even turn him over. He's going to annihilate a new set of promises through the bread and the juice. The point this covenant that was made with Abraham continues in new ways with him. And that he was inviting the whole world to be part of this. That no longer is it on the basis of who you are, but whose you are. Ultimately, Jesus is going to be betrayed, turned over, crucified on the cross. And after three days, he's going to raise from the dead. He's going to pour out his spirit upon the church. And ask us to be his very body. To point people to him to, to be salt and light. To let people see the spirit of God at work in and through us. And to announce that the kingdom is, of heaven is at hand until that time when new creation arrives. When heaven comes to earth and we're raised in our resurrection body. That time when there's no more pain and no more sorrow and there's no more tears. We're a storied people. We're not a set of uh, Greco-Roman philosophies of how to be the best self. We're people who stand in Israel's story, who stand on this side of Christ being that perfect end of Israel's story. Christ sums up that whole story in today's parable when he said that God... He says it's a landowner, but it's God. Formed creation, or for the landowner, formed a vineyard that was perfect. It was ripe for fruit. It had a great watchtower and was given to a group to tend. And time after time after time, that group attacked him when he came back for his harvest, ultimately killing his own son. Jesus is telling Israel's story that time after time after time, the very people tasked with being God's faithful ones, with being the blessing to the world, with being God's hope, reject God and trample on humanity. And Jesus says, so what the landowner is going to do is going to do away with you as the ones who care for the property. He's going to set up a new set of tenant farmers who will care for it and who will bear a harvest. And immediately the Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes knew that he was talking about them, that there was a new order. And that new order is the church, friends. That new order is us. We are tasked with being the tenants of God's vineyard. We stand at this point where we are caring for what God has given us. The text says that the new tenants will also face a reckoning, that the landowner is going to come back and demand to see the fruit. Friends, we must be a people who bear fruit with what God has given us. It's not enough to assent to a set of beliefs 
We literally must be a people who evidence that with our lives. Bearing the fruits of the Spirit, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. People who embody the cardinal virtues. Jan and I were talking about this morning. These things that prevent us from giving in to the seven deadly sins. Uh, I have to write them down because there is no good song about coconuts for the cardinal virtues. Chastity and temperance, charity and diligence, patience, kindness, and humility. These things that help transform our hearts and bear fruit. To avoid being a people who would trample upon our neighbors and who would reject God. We must bear fruit that... Our life looks like a people who embody the Beatitudes. God has made the vineyard and placed us in it. We don't have to plant it. We don't have to build the walls. We don't have to put in the press. We simply have to yield the fruit. God has poured out his grace and we simply have to respond. Richard Thompson gets mad at me every time I say, that God has poured out his grace and we simply have to respond because I think he's right that I do make that sound too easy. Our response requires something and it's going to come with a cost. It's going to come at us availing ourselves of the means of grace, of denying ourselves and taking up our cross, but it's never the first move. The first move is that God has built the vineyard. God will pour out his grace and for much, most of my life, I thought fruit bearing was the way that I could enter into relationship. And it's been later in life that I've realized that it comes out of our relationship. No longer do I try hard enough for God to love me. I want to bear fruit because God loves me. My prayer still passion often. But it's not because I'm afraid. It's because I desire for God to sanctify me. Every morning at the end of morning prayers, we pray, God, pour grace on us in abundance that we might grow in love of you and in love of our neighbor, that we might be a people full of holy love who point people to your throne of grace and who show people your face. Friends, God has planted a vineyard The wicked tenants are no longer in charge. He's placed us in it and will ultimately judge us and, and call us to himself on the basis of our fruit. I have loved the last 18 months at Andover because you are a fruit-filled people, a people who are working out your salvation with fear and trembling, who are availing your grace who take seriously what it means to be a people, a people who show the world God. You're a people who, when the world looks, they see good. I wish I could see all of you who are online because I'm looking across this parking lot at face after face after face after face of people who I see the image of God in, who show up who bear fruit, people who do the hard work of being humanity, who work through the mess of what it means to be on this side of new creation, who continually come back to God and say, here I am, Lord. 
Friends, may it be our prayer day after day that God would pour out his grace upon us, that he would sanctify us through and through and make us holy people who bear the fruit of the Spirit, who have the cardinal virtues embedded in our very essence, who look like the Beatitudes. God pours his grace out, and we simply have to respond. I wish I could see Richard's face right now. <laughs> we simply have to respond. We have the great means of grace of scripture reading, of worship, of fasting, of prayer, and of the sacraments. These ordinary means through which God pours out his grace in our lives. These very vessels of all that we need to be a fruitful people.